Hello, friends, and welcome to episode six of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this podcast is the place to be for everything you need to know in the career of Jack Nicholson. We have entered into the year 1966 this week, and I had a listener point out a little fun fact to me this week. When Jack won his first Oscar for 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, in his acceptance speech, one of the things that he said was, and of course I'm paraphrasing, I'd like to dedicate this to my agent, who 10 years ago told me I should quit show business. So that would mean that the movies we'll be talking about today are the ones that Jack was working on at the time his agent made that statement. So thank you, Steve, for pointing that out to me. Figure it had been a long eight years since Jack's first feature film role. I've been tired just after a mere six weeks of reviewing these early works. And I do have a correction to make. And I am, trust me, kicking myself over this. Back in episode four, when I was talking about Jack's life in 1963... I said that his daughter Jennifer was born on September 16th of that year. Well, as it turns out, the source that I read that from was wrong because I follow Jennifer on social media and I saw just a few days ago that her birthday was in fact September 13th. So I flubbed that date by three days. And the thing is, I feel like I knew that. I feel like I had read that somewhere that her birthday was the 13th, but I wasn't thinking about it when I saw the 16th on Wikipedia, but I am so bummed out that I got that date wrong. My apologies, everyone. But on to new business. Last week, I told you about Jack's movies from 1964. So in the spring of 1965, he filmed both movies that we'll be talking about today. The Shooting, and Ride in the Whirlwind. They were filmed back-to-back over a period of six weeks out in the Utah desert. First up is The Shooting, directed by Monty Hellman, who directed Flight to Fury and Backdoor to Hell one year earlier in the Philippines, produced by Jack Nicholson and Monty Hellman. The films, that's The Shooting and Ride in the Whirlwind, were financed by... Roger Corman. After Jack and Monty Hellman had finished with their projects in the Philippines, they had written a script called Epitaph. They presented the script to Corman to produce, but Corman suggested they do a Western instead. Furthermore, he suggested they make two Westerns, similar to how they made two films back-to-back in the Philippines. So Jack started writing the script for Ride in the Whirlwind. And they brought in their friend, screenwriter Carol Eastman, to write the script for the shooting, which she did under her pen name, Adrian Joyce. Carol Eastman would go on to write the screenplays for three more films that Jack appears in. Five Easy Pieces in 1970, The Fortune in 1975, and Man Trouble in 1992. Both The Shooting and Ride in the Whirlwind are said to have had a budget of $75,000. So I'm a little unclear if that means that Corman put up the seventy-five dollars for both films in total, 
or if it's 75,000 each. Supposing that it was in total, I don't know how much toward each film, but for argument's sake, let's just say it was split right down the middle. So we would be talking about $37,500 for each film. That is an insanely low budget for a feature, even in the 1960s. So I think it's much more realistic that it was $75,000 each. And part of the deal was, if either film went over budget, Jack and Monty Hillman would have to pay for it out of their own pockets. So they scouted for weeks to find a location that would work for both. And that was how they landed on Kanab, Utah. And when you're working with a limited budget, you really have to get creative and cut costs wherever possible. So for that reason, no lighting equipment was used at all. They relied entirely on natural light throughout the shoot. When filming began on the shooting, there was a production crew consisting of only seven people. This is about as indie as you can get. This is the kind of filmmaking that you see nowadays all the time. And what I mean by that is not independent features with a limited release, with a six-figure budget that you can catch on IFC or the Sundance channel. No, this to me feels very reminiscent of the kind of thing aspiring filmmakers do all the time. I mean, in their case... They own their own equipment. Usually they're working with no budget whatsoever. It's 100% out of pocket. I know because I've worked on a number of those types of projects. And when you're that restricted, you really have to have faith in the project that you're working on in order to follow through with it, I believe. Because at that point, if you don't have faith in the project, You're just going to be asking yourself, Jesus H. Christ, what are we all doing here? But they pulled through. In the shooting, Jack plays Billy Spear, a hired gunman. The film stars Warren Oates as Will Gashade, Will Hutchins as Coley, and Millie Perkins as the woman who never reveals her name. Now, Millie Perkins, who is best known for her starring role in 1959's The Diary of Anne Frank, was also in a film that I talked about last week. She played Ensign Pulver's love interest, a military nurse named Scotty. Jack and Monty Hellman thought she would be perfect for the role in the shooting. They had both known her for several years. The three of them first met when they were in an acting class together. So as the film opens, Gashade is returning to his mining camp to rejoin his partners, Coley and Leland. But when he returns he discovers a headstone. The lettering was carved in very erratically, the handwriting was messy, and there were several spelling mistakes. It was Leland's headstone, and it was put up by Coley, sort of the dim-witted one of the group. But the close-up of the headstone was noticeably shot with the camera being held by hand, and while naturally that would have to be because of the limited equipment, It was a really good decision, I thought, because it made the shot so unsettling. The shakiness of the camera with the close-up on the messy handwriting as it tilts down the headstone from top to bottom, it set the right tone for the movie. So Coley, who is still shaken, 
explains to Gashade what happened. The explanation was for me difficult to understand, but as Coley is recounting the events from two nights before, we're also seeing flashbacks, which helped move the story along. Coley explains that two days before, Leland was shot, but Coley didn't see who it was or where the shot came from. Gashade's brother was also present at the time. Coley believes the shooting was revenge for the trampling death of, as they call it, a little person in town, which may have been caused by Gashade's brother. The brother took off from the camp moments before the shooting. So Gashade, after hearing this story, goes to sleep in the tent, and he tells Coley to stay up in case anyone should come through during the night. But the following day, Gashade is sitting by the fire, and a feeling comes over him. He can tell that someone is coming. In the next shot, we see a white horse laying on the ground on its side, and a hand puts a gun to the horse's head. Now, prior to last week, I had not seen this movie all the way through. But years ago, when I was probably around 13, I would say, very fresh in my Jack obsession, I did catch parts of it on TV once. I remember seeing the shot of this beautiful horse with a pistol inches away from its head. And to see that image irked me so much as a kid that that was the one thing I remembered about the movie over 20 years later. The gunshot happens off screen, but it's right outside of Gashade and Coley's camp, so they immediately hear the shot. Gashade tells Coley to get into the tent, but then, standing up on the horizon, is the woman. She comes down into the site, and she tells Gashade her horse broke its leg, so she had to put it down, and she'd like to buy one of their horses. She also knows that Gashade is a former bounty hunter, so she offers him $1,000 to lead her to a town called Kingsley. Gashade doesn't trust the woman from the beginning. After he sells her a horse, they go back to her other horse's remains to collect her saddle. Gashade inspects the horse and discovers that all the legs were fine. And a horse like that is actually very hard to come by. When he questions the woman on why she shot the horse, she doesn't answer. My thought was, maybe if anything, it was so Gashade would have to sell her one of his horses, or at least have to hear her offer, forced interactions so that she could offer him the $1,000 to take her to Kingsley. He eventually agrees, but part of the deal is Coley has to come along. So as the three get started on their journey through the desert, I thought they made another interesting choice as far as camera shots. It's another handheld shot, so it's quite shaky, and it's from Gashade's point of view. We see the woman from behind on her horse, and without so much as turning, she says, Are you looking at me, Mr. Gashade? The woman is very cold towards the two men. She reveals nothing about herself. She won't even share why she has to get to Kingsley. But the way I see it, she has to be. She's a woman by herself in the Old West. So you have to be cold. You have to be tough just for the sake of survival. She carries a pistol at all times, and periodically, she would aim off into the distance and shoot, sometimes surprising Gashade. 
but they would write it off as she's practicing her targets. Now, the first shot that we see of Billy Spear, played by Jack, is about 35 minutes into the movie. First, we see him on his horse far off in the distance, but then it's a tight close-up on his eyes. He's watching the three as they continue onward. What I liked about this film is the mystery. There is much more mystery here than I think I've ever seen in another Western. The unexplained shooting at the beginning of the movie, the unidentified woman who has hired Gashade to lead her on this journey, Jack's character, and whatever his reasons are for watching them from a distance. And what is waiting for them once they arrive at this place, Kingsley? And I have to say, I liked the natural light. To me, it gave the film authenticity. At some moments, the sky was overcast, and I preferred that over any artificial sunlight that they would have had to create with the use of lighting equipment. The only time that it does become problematic for obvious reasons is during scenes that take place at night. When it's dark, it gets really dark, but not so much so that you can't follow the story. During a night scene, Coley fires the woman's gun off in the distance. She erupts in anger, and then she fires off three more shots in different directions. We find out that her periodic firing of her gun weren't target practice, they were signals to Billy Spear. Billy Spear was hired by the woman, and he had been keeping a short distance up until that point. So she calls out, Billy Spear, and he shows himself. He's very quiet, but he's a hired gun, so he's ready at all times. But he's also a bully. Multiple times he threatens both Gashade and Coley's lives. So eventually, the woman's horse dies of exhaustion. So Coley who is clearly sweet on the woman, gives her his horse. Well, now, Coley has to ride with Gashade, but the two of them are now too much for Gashade's horse. So the woman says that Coley should stay behind. He's reluctant to do so, but what choice does he have now? So Gashade, the woman, and Billy Spear continue on, and they leave Coley behind. Gashade assures Coley he'll come back for him. So as they continue, they see a man out in the desert and he's nursing a broken leg. The woman knows this man and he tells her that the man that she's looking for is only one day's ride away. So she leaves him her canteen and the three continue on. But that man had a horse and that horse bolted and the horse is found by Coley. So Coley mounts the horse and he rides on towards the group. As he gets closer, he draws his gun and he charges at Billy Spear. And I'll be honest, I thought Billy Spear was kind of a bastard. So I was kind of rooting for him to get shot. But don't forget, Billy Spear is a professional. He draws his gun and fires at Coley. And as I was watching this part, I actually was sitting there and I said out loud, Damn. Why did you do that? He draw on me first. He was going to shoot, ask him. It's too bad. But he should have stayed behind. He didn't like me. That's why. Should have known to not draw on me. This whole journey that we've been on leads up to a climactic couple of minutes at the very end of the movie. It's a little unclear what's happening, I thought. I actually wrote in my notes... I don't understand the ending. 
I had to go online and read the synopsis to fully understand the last few minutes. All the horses end up dying, so they continue on foot. Then the woman sees a man off in the distance, presumably the man she's been looking for. So she goes after him, her gun drawn. Gashade goes after her. Then the unidentified man turns around, and he's identical to Gashade. It's his brother, the brother that was briefly mentioned at the beginning of the movie, the one who bolted just before Leland was shot. Both he and the woman fire at each other at the same time, and they're both shot dead. Now, I've been reading some of the things that critics have said about this film, and some hail it as a brilliant ending, almost existential in nature, as one person called it. But I'm sitting here thinking, was the ending so vague and abrupt because of the limited production? It's confusing. And I really feel like you can't understand it until you have it explained to you. So I have to think they would have done more if given a larger budget and had more time as opposed to just three weeks before they moved on to ride in the whirlwind. The shooting was never released theatrically, but it did premiere at the San Francisco International Film Festival, and it screened at various film festivals, including out of competition at Cannes. I liked the mystery of it. It didn't seem like a typical Western to me. It had suspense, and I felt like the suspense was what drove the movie. As soon as filming wrapped on the shooting, the crew immediately got to work on Ride in the Whirlwind, directed by Monty Hellman, written by Jack Nicholson, produced by Jack and Monty Hellman. Jack plays Wes, one of a trio of cowboys, along with Otis, played by Tom Filer, and Vern, played by Cameron Mitchell. Millie Perkins is in this one as well, and this time her character does have a name, Abigail, a much different character from the woman in the shooting. The movie starts off with a gang of outlaws robbing a stagecoach, and come to find out in addition to the robbery, they also lynched the coach's driver. Later on, I believe it's the following day, the trio of cowboys, as they're riding through, discover the driver hanging from a tree. Now, I don't know if it's because I already had this information, but I felt that you could tell this was the same terrain that we saw in the shooting. The cliffs all looked very similar to me, though the shooting is set in an isolated desert and Ride in the Whirlwind is set in a box canyon. The trio, as they continue on, have to stop to rest and they come upon a shack. Unbeknownst to them, the shack is occupied by the very gang that robbed the stagecoach and killed the driver. The outlaws are led by a man with one eye, who goes by Blind Dick, played by Harry Dean Stanton, credited as Dean Stanton. This is the first title with Jack and Harry Dean Stanton together, and the two of them would remain lifelong friends. Now, this movie lacks the mystery and the suspense that we had in the shooting. There's a slow build to the action. It was similar to Thunder Island in that regard. But there was something about it that felt slow-paced. And that might be because the shooting was a story of a journey across a rough terrain. So it quite literally lacks the same movement. But the trio realizes that they are among the outlaws that robbed the coach, 
And before they can continue on their way, a group of vigilantes come up on the shack, and they mistake the three for being part of the gang of outlaws. The trio tries to make their way up over the mountain while the outlaws are barricaded inside the shack, but then a gunfight erupts, and there's a long scene of firing back and forth at each other. Otis, one of the trio of cowboys, is hit, and he dies. So now it's just Wes, played by Jack, and Vern. The vigilantes smoke the remaining outlaws out. They set fire to the shack, and they surrender. The vigilantes lynch the two remaining outlaws, but then they continue in pursuit of Wes and Vern. The two men don't know where they're headed. They've got no horses, nowhere to hide. They're in a desperate situation. So down in the Box Canyon is a house and a farm owned by Evan, played by George Mitchell. Evan lives there with his wife, Catherine, played by Catherine Squire, and their daughter, Abigail, played by Millie Perkins. The next morning, as Evan is outside chopping away at a stump, Wes and Vern enter the house, and they take Catherine and Abigail hostage. They instruct Abigail to go out and summon her father for supper, like she does every day. As he comes in, they hold him at gunpoint, too. They explain to the family they've done nothing wrong. They just need to hide out until they can make an escape from the vigilantes. They decide they're going to need horses. So Wes wants to go out to look at the horses that they have in the stable. But to avoid any suspicion, in case the vigilantes come by, he wants to bring Abigail with him. So if anybody should see them, they'll just assume that he's Abigail's father. Well, Evan and Catherine are visibly shaken at the idea of this man being alone with their daughter, but Wes assures them. And he repeats this more than once. I'm just going to look at the horses. So he and Abigail go out to the stable. She remains quiet. If Wes says anything to her, she only responds with a one-word answer. He even makes a comment, you don't say much, do you? And watching this, I was like, well, what is she supposed to say? You're taking her and her family hostage, for God's sake. But she does say that they should go back in the house. But Wes doesn't want to go back in yet. He wants to stay outside. They're going to hang. Does she think that's right? I don't know. It ain't up to me. You just do what? It's right with your paws all you care about? Dude, come on now. She wants to go back inside because she's uncomfortable being alone with you. But later on, a member of the vigilantes passes by and he speaks to Evan outside as he's working on that stump, as he was instructed to do by Wes and Vern. This vigilante figures out that the two are inside the house, so he tries to play it off like he's just continuing on his way. But Wes and Vern decide at this moment to make a break for it. They head out to the stable and attempt to steal two of Evan's horses. Evan collects his gun and he fires at them, hitting Vern. But the two continue on, even with Vern being hurt. Vern ultimately decides he can't go any further, so he stays back. And he holds off the vigilantes until Wes is able to get away. It took a while for me to become invested in Ride in the Whirlwind. I found that I was fully engaged at the moment Wes and Vern took the family hostage. It felt like there was a story at that point, because it was a lot of gunfire and shoot 'em up up until that point. 
And I'm wondering, too, if maybe it was because that's also the point where we see two women in the movie, because prior to that, it's all men. And initially, it was a little difficult to differentiate who was a member of the outlaws, who was from the trio of cowboys, and who was from the vigilantes. But though it started off slow, it did pick up midway through, I thought. So it did end up having an engaging story, and it had a clear ending. Not the, I want to say, surreal, albeit confusing, ending in the shooting. So what do you know? I like two more Westerns. I think it's because I went into it with an open mind. And like with the shooting, I was willing to give it a chance that I wasn't really willing to give to it when I first saw pieces of it when I was a kid. So I want you to give these movies a chance too. You can find both The Shooting and Ride in the Whirlwind for free on Tubi. Again, that's T-U-B-I which you should be able to find on your smart TV. And that was Jack's work from 1966. Next week, we'll be talking about two of Jack's movies, which were released in 1967, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Hell's Angels on Wheels. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a nice rating. And don't forget to follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover a ton of other original podcasts just waiting to be put in your ears. And be on the lookout for my blog. A new entry will come out the day after this episode is released. So until then... I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.